0: The technology landscape is exploding, and it has never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. There's so much information out there, it can be hard to know where to start or who to trust. Your host, David Paul, is a seasoned venture capital investor that has founded his own investment firm, DWP Capital. He's a straight shooter that cuts through all the noise to bring you real and authentic conversations with investors, founders, and operators in the startup ecosystem. Join him each week to stay current with today's trends and get smarter about startups and tech investing.
1: Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. This is David Paul with the Capital Stack. Today I am interviewing Tim Hargis, who is. In the operator side of guests, when we talk about, you know, our guests being investors, founders, and operators, he is quite exceptional. He was the VP of Marketing and Business Development at the Phoenix Darling Tough to Needle. He was employee number eleven and helped to grow the company from nine million to two hundred million in three years. Uh, this is the second attempt that we've tried to do this podcast. We're actually doing it live, which is great. Um, we're in this kind of real funky old town concept co-working podcast. There's people looking at me. Um, they have glasses and, uh, they seem like they know a lot about audio. Tim, how are you doing? Good. Great to be on again. I know it's good. Let's, on let, let's do it right this time. That's right. Hopefully, we have better internet quality here than
0: here. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
1: Yeah, it matters. It definitely matters. Um, Tim, tell me a little bit about you know. I mean, they're, they're, your your career is quite extensive. You know, I'd like to go from you know you were you were an entrepreneur. You worked in kind of the wholesale precious metal business. You know, starting that from zero, you know, really focusing on brands. You were one of the largest precious metal um, jewelry wholesalers in the Southwest. You sold it Mm -hmm. for accomplishment. How old were you when you sold it?
2: I was twenty-seven.
1: Twenty-seven. Yeah, you're you're doing a lot more productive things than when I was twenty-seven years old. I don't
2: know. I I felt like it was going to continue and upward, and then I'm like, man, I've actually got less successful over
1: time. (laughs) Yeah, you
2: you you peaked. That's right, yeah. I was in my prime, and that's uh, all true ever since then, yeah. You know. It's been the opposite way. No, I was, uh, yeah, I was 27. It was a fun ride. Started it when I was
1: 21. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you just fell into that because you started working nice at a jewelry store, right?
2: Yeah, I was, uh, I was 16. It was uh, my first job. I got a job. My friend worked at the mall. Uh, some you guys are probably familiar with the concept of fast-fix jewelry and watch repair. Turn all the major malls, it's a big franchise. It was the first job I got. I was 16. I was playing football. Um, and come home from practice at six, take off my clothes, throw on my shirt and tie, go to the mall and work at the uh, the jewelry store. So I did that for about three years, but loved that job. It was super fun, interesting, learned a lot about jewelry, which is kind of interesting for a guy um, at that age. But uh, learned a lot about you know, jewelry, precious metals, gold buying when I was in that space. Um, so, yeah, I start, started there and uh, my manager at the time was 10 years older than me. Um, we ended up becoming really good friends and that's ultimately how I started the business when I was, uh, when I was 21,
1: he became your business partner.
2: Yeah, that's right. Okay. So he was, uh, he was 26. I was 16 when we met, uh, and we ended up starting the company. When I was 21. He was yeah, in his early thirties. So mm-hmm. that's kind of how I got started in the, uh, the jewelry, precious metals world. In- interesting random space, but, uh, really enjoyed it.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and we talked about kind of what made that a success and, you know, the parallels between that and Tough to Needle. And I remember you talking about, you know, you you really took a a business that was really retail focused and, you know, you gave people a better experience. You gave people, you had a better online footprint. You made it less sketchy than traditional, you know, gold buyers out there. Um, And then, you know, you were in a position where you sold it, then Tell me the kind of transition into Tough to Needle. And tell me, like, for the listeners that don't know, what was Tough to Needle? What made them so special? Yeah, I guess just
2: to, to, to back up a little bit. I mean, I we started that company when I was 21. We started it with 2700 bucks. It was my business partner and I. Um, we had a really, really small office over on 48th Street in McDowell, which is certainly not the best part of Phoenix. I remember that space. It was, it was at 78 square feet. I remember when customers would come into our office, they would like, they would open the door and it would hit the chair that they would sit in, right? It was absolutely tiny. Um, but it taught me a lot about things. You know, I was always entrepreneurial when I was younger. I always read the books. I always had an interest in that from very early age. Um, but that was kind of my first company. So anyway, long story short, we ended up growing that company at about $10 million. We had a we franchised it, So We had a lot of franchisees across the country. That
1: was that a difficult process, going through the franchisor kind of process?
2: Yeah, it was, and it was crazy. We we talked to companies that would help us do it that were charging like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And There were companies that were charging twenty thousand dollars to do the same thing. <laughs> so I was like, I don't know which one to go with. This seems totally crazy. Why is there such a difference? You know, and uh, but yes, it was it was a very long process. A lot of legal docs. Why was uh, it?
1: Why was it such a d- disparity? <laughs> I think
2: because the the company that was like the big player in the space just had a lot of big brands that they'd worked with over the years, Got so they it. felt like they could charge it. Um, it's a company called Fran Connect.
0: Mm-hmm. They
2: did like Jimmy John's and a lot of the really big concepts. Um, so at the time we were doing super well and we were like actually considering going with them, um, but I think the more we thought about, it, we we're like this is a pretty big risk. Um, let's go with uh, let's go with the more budget options. So mm-hmm. we ended up hiring a local company that helped us do it. Looking back, I don't think there would have been that much of a difference. A lot of it's just the legal docs that you have, yeah. to, have to franchise A lot of it, compliance
1: type Yeah, they things. don't help
2: you with the marketing and the strategy. I mean, all of that kind of falls on your shoulders anyway. Um, but there's a lot of legal docs that you need when you're going to set up a, a franchise concept. You're making, so.
1: st- you're making statements that this is how you do this, and you will get this type of outcome if you do it this way, right? So. Yeah, exactly. Um, and different
2: states have different rules. So you have to register in states to be able to sell the franchise concept. I'm making very expensive. You have the annual filings and whatnot. But uh, yeah, I learned a lot. It wasn't what I expected to do when I was 24, 25 franchising this concept. But it was it was very successful and worked very, very well. Um, so when I, yeah, I sold that company when I was 27. I think you know one of the lessons was should have sold it earlier. I considered selling it a year earlier. It was growing very fast. But I was like, oh, it's going to keep growing. It's going to keep growing. And then 2013, the economy really started to recover. Um, we really benefited from... The economy struggling. The real estate crashed because what mm-hmm. happened, in t- we started in 2008. I was an underwriter at Chase Bank. You know, banks started tightening up their lending requirements. The real estate market crashed. Gold went up really, really fast. So it was just kind of lucky timing for us. We got into the space at the right time.
1: At the time, did you um, think it was lucky and, and it was a timing-based thing? Or did you think that it was execution? Did you think that it was just the the brand positioning? I, I think... Yeah, it's easy to like delude yourself into thinking, oh, we're just so much
2: smarter and we're so much better. And um, I think we did things better than other companies. But I think a lot of it was, yeah, we just had the tailwind, the timing of the real estate market Mm -hmm. crash, the stock market crashed and gold shot up. People were in need of cash. so They had to start thinking about liquidating their gold portfolios. Um, So I think it was a lot of things at the time. Um, But I think the biggest thing that helped us was we just had a really, really big competitive advantage in terms of online marketing you're competing against independent jewelry stores you know mom and pops right that just that no jewelry they've been in the space a long time but they're not sophisticated online um so there was a really really big delta between what we do online and what our average competitor knew we use that to our advantage we were a very small company we were obviously new we had no credibility in the space but very very quickly we shot to the top of google for the most competitive search terms in our space which really helped us um, grow very, 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 very quickly. So yeah, we, we did well just because, like I said, the, the skill set and the expertise level when it came to online marketing is very low with the competitors that we're competing against. So
1: that was the yeah, kind of story of, of that business. So um, the, the psychology, though, of not selling was it's going to stay, right? The growth is going to stay. I want to hold exactly. up. Was there any, um, <clears throat> I hear this a lot from entrepreneurs and founders, the, well, if I don't do this, what am I going to do, right? Was there any of that? identity kind of crisis with it. I don't think there was that
2: so much. Uh cuz I I I knew that eventually, right, the market would probably not be a tailwind for us anymore, like the economy would start to recover, gold would start to drop. So I knew there was kind of a shelf life to the business. Um I wasn't sure exactly how long it was going to be, but I felt like we had a little bit we had a little more ways to go than what we actually did. Um, so I think my partner and I kind of knew like eventually we were going to sell the company. We had different interests too. I mean, he was married, he had three kids, he was 36. And, you know, when we first started thinking about selling the business, I was single, I didn't have any kids. Like he paid off his house, his wife wasn't working, like he was just doing well. He wanted to play golf every day. I very much wasn't in that mode. So I think our paths and interests kind of diverged over time. Um, but there wasn't that. there wasn't that thought for me. It was more about how long can we ride this? right Can we get it to grow a little bit faster? Can we get it a little bigger and we can sell it for more? That was
1: really kind of the thought process, and I think that ended up being a, definitely a mistake. Did growth um, matter in that in that sector at that time, like it does today, where everything's about growth
2: no in that in that sector it was you know even talk cash flow driven mm-hmm. um it wasn't yeah it wasn't a you know a SaaS company or you know some high flying e-commerce company. It was VC back. It was a very traditional, just offline business. We started it with twenty seven hundred dollars. It's all the money we put into it. Sure. Um, it was more like, how much cash can we take out of the business for the next year? Can we get it to continue to grow? Um, we thought the answer to that question was yes. It turned out to be wrong. Yeah. Went, went the other way. <laughs> right. um, and it's it's not ideal to
1: sell a business when it's not when it's not doing nearly as well. How did you so. think about? And this is just you know how I think of absorption right market absorption and in this case we're talking about retail locations and you know and in a sas context it might be market penetration within a customer base but on the local when did you feel like it was time to open up a new store or to go into a different area
2: yeah so one, one of the things that we looked at real closely was just where our traffic and our website was coming from so we looked at google analytics um What we started to realize was we started, you know, 40th Street and McDowell was very, like, centrally located, but it wasn't a great location.
0: Uh
2: Um, But we started having a lot more customers and searches coming from North Scottsdale. We kind of positioned our brand as more of the premium, kind of like the higher-end company in the space. A lot of the companies in the space were kind of sketchy. They didn't have great reputations, right? So we put our offices in, like, high-end areas. We have a lot of, like, executive suites, like, very, very nice buildings that wealthy people would feel comfortable coming to um so we started in kind of central phoenix we weren't really sure where our traffic was going to come from it turned out that a lot of it was coming from north scottsdale so we opened an office in the airport. park
1: was there any like you know shame like was it was the part of that like you know i'm rich and i want to hawk my jewels and you know i don't want to go to like some seedy pawn shop to do it i'd rather go to like a high-end place and i don't want to be seen in that yeah exactly i mean i think that was a big advantage
2: for us because we did we did appointments so it was all one-on-one. Mm-hmm. Like, so we had a high-end office. One, it was secure for our employees too, right? Like it's a lot of these places, they got signs on the side of the road. You know, we buy gold, cash for gold. They're super shady. Mm-hmm. Um, the upscale clientele is never going to go to those types of places, right? So we had like a very kind of a high-end, kind of a premium brand um, in the space. And I think to your point, that's why a lot of those individuals that maybe they didn't have to sell, but they were taking advantage of the prices. The gold was higher than it had ever been.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so we were the best outlet, they could kind of turn to mm-hmm. um, but they like that it's private it's confidential very discreet right versus the traditional experience where you got to walk into a jewelry store and a pawn shop there's other people around you right and they're just they're just not going to do that um but it allowed us to like not sign very very long-term leases we didn't have huge build outs right it was it was a great hack right right but we had these beautiful looking offices that weren't very large but they were in very very nice buildings and people loved that experience mm-hmm. so it turned out to be a, to be a great move but go back go back to your question about how we what you know what metrics we would use to determine you know where we're going to open locations we very much just see where the traffic's coming from um we saw we had a lot more appointments from north scottsdale that were driving down so we knew that was a good market we opened in North scottsdale and we went down to south chandler and then we opened up a location up in avondale to try to get kind of the far far west valley market mm-hmm. um but there wasn't a lot of risk because these are short-term leases and the offices are 200 square feet so it's right. like hey if it doesn't work yeah. You just get out of the lease. It's not a 10 year lease right. with a you know, half a million dollar build out.
1: Yeah. So tell me <clears throat> all right, so you sell the business. Um probably stayed in a year too long, is that right? Yeah. I would say yeah, pro-
2: probably at twelve
1: to eighteen months. I would say I sell things too early. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, take a, I just smell the money and I just get scared and I want to sell. I know. Um, that, that happens to me a lot now based on that experience. <laughs> yeah. Like Bitcoin's up 10%. I'm going to sell. Right, you know, like I'm not. I'm good. A, this is the top. I know, I know that it is. You're zero right. conviction. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'm just going to take my cash and go put it right, under, yeah. under, my, under my bed. That's right. Yeah. Um, Cool. So tell me the transition into Tough to Needle. Uh, Did you hear about the brand prior? Obviously, you knew Dehi, who was the CEO, or I guess he was the founder, right, at that time.
2: Yeah, yeah. So Dehi was one of the co-founders. But uh, after I had sold my company, I was connected with a lot of just entrepreneurs. I was an EO, knew a lot of people kind of in the startup tech world. Um, But Dehi was a good friend of mine. met him shortly after they launched the company. Um, first year, they did a million dollars in sales, and when you're selling a six $700 price point product, it doesn't take that many sales. to so a million dollars. I'm <throat> assuming that sounds like a lot. Wow, a million dollars, it's a lot. Um, I think it was really very clear at the time that it was going to be successful. It was very up and down. I remember Dehe would tell me, oh, yeah, we sold two mattresses today, right? And then they would go days where they wouldn't sell one.
1: Right. So you didn't really know at the time. Um, but and, that, what, and that was all um, paid search is how they would drive traffic?
2: Yeah. It was, the, the company started, I mean, Dehe and JT... Working in a big successful you know, VC-backed startup in Silicon Valley, they'd raise tons of money. We're burning all kinds of cash, um, and they and they they were they were good friends. They went to Penn State together. You know, they actually lived in Tempe while he was commuting, working for the startup in Silicon Valley. JT lived in Palo Alto, um, but they were talking. They're like it just kind of feels like we're playing house and they have all this investor money they're just kind of having fun you know yeah. doing a lot of stuff having you know the cool yeah. office playing business right. right but they're yeah. not they're not really building a real product right and I think they talk to them. they're like it just doesn't feel right
1: um, <laughs> so <laughs> you know as they're going down the slide they're like <laughs> yeah, know, they're and like, eating their crazy. fresh made crepes like <laughs> I think we're right. supposed to be actually doing something right they're just burning investors <laughs> this money cause it's <laughs> it's cool and it's fun, you know, and yeah. it's like, it doesn't feel said. right.
2: But <laughs> yeah. They were like, this, yeah, this something seems <laughs> off about this. So they kind of grew tired of that. And, uh, they, they had this idea. JT would just got married and bought a mattress. It was very, very, very expensive. It was a $3,500 mattress, big name brand that everybody would know if I said it. Um, but just had a terrible experience to that process and he told that about it. And he's like, yeah, I bought a mattress too. Like it was absolutely terrible. So they were like, let's see if there's a potential market for this, right? So they spun up a landing page. The product didn't exist at the time, but they told the story as if the company was real and the product did exist. Um, and JT tells a story where he's sitting in a coffee shop in Palo Alto, and I can't remember the name of it. I think it was Willow or something like that. But anyway, um, they, launched the, they launched the site. He was more on the marketing side. JT's background is kind of in software engineering and development. And uh, within 15 minutes, they had a sale. And Jared JT told the story he was... I stood up in that coffee shop and I yelled, like, jackpot.
1: (laughs) Very dramatic. Yeah, exactly. Like what you'd see in a Silicon Valley
2: episode or something like that, right? So
1: he – Product market fit, Yeah, exactly. They were like, wow,
2: they got (laughs) to sell very, very quickly. Like there might be something here. Right. Um, I'd go all in at that point. That's, that's enough to raise a couple million bucks. 15 (laughs) minutes, one sale. You're like, it's going to be worth billions. You just, (laughs) you just, you just know at that point, right? Exactly. Um, but so anyway, yeah, they ended up starting the company with $6,000. Um, they funded it themselves, obviously kept it very, very, very lean. Like I said, first, first year they did a million dollars in sales. Um, second year they did $9 million in sales and that's when I joined, um, shortly thereafter. But yeah, most of it was, was search-based, but the budgets were very, very low at that time. Um, and a lot of it was just organic referrals. They got started in early adopter markets like Silicon Valley, you know, LA, New York City. We have a demographic that's like comfortable trying new things, experimenting with new brands. That's kind of how they, they got started in the early days. So that's when I joined.
1: Yeah, so you know, for the audience that doesn't know, like, Tough to Needle was the first mattress in a box on your doorstep. Right. right. And and prior to that, mattresses for the large part were sold in these seedy retail locations and you would go there and there would be like a car salesman, like literally laying on the bed with you you (laughs) wanting to, you know, sell you a mattress while like laying in between you and your wife, you know, (laughs) trying to get the, the order slip signed. and. Um, you know, selling a, and I guess the technology was like a Tempur-Pedic, or it wasn't a pedic It was foam, right? Just like, and that was was that the innovation? Was that like, hey, we can take a foam? Were, were foam mattresses available then?
2: Yeah, foam mattresses were available. I mean, Tempur-Pedic is you know foam mattress, memory foam mattress. They've been around forever. Very expensive product. Um, so the foam itself wasn't the real innovation. I mean, there was there was some innovations around the foam that he mm-hmm. did, um, but memory foam mattress has been around forever. We innovated on kind of the memory foam concept. We took away the drawbacks of memory foam and the reasons people didn't like it and ended up developing a product that was kind of the best of both worlds. Um, but that, that wasn't, I don't think what made the the company successful. Um, a lot of it in the early days was the margins in the industry were just crazy. You know, JT cut open his mattress and he realized very, very quickly that like, or not his specific mattress He ended up returning that one, but another mattress. And he's like, this is just like a block of phone.
1: Yeah. Like, why the hell? <laughs> I think I listened to a podcast. He like took a chainsaw to it or something like with his wife. and was just looking at it. Like, what are you doing?
2: Yeah. He started doing some research. He started getting you know super into it and wanted to like see what went into a mattress, why it was so expensive. They were going to start this company. They obviously needed to find suppliers, manufacturers, et cetera. Um, He was like, yeah, this is, this is foam. Like, why is it $4,000? Like, this is, this is absolutely crazy. (laughs) This is
1: the biggest lie we've been telling ourselves.
2: exactly. Yeah. It was just like, what? (laughs) We've been lied to. Right. I was like, what, what am I missing here? Right. Like there's gotta, there's gotta be something. And he realized over time when he started talking to manufacturers, there wasn't, it was really, really inexpensive to make a mattress. It was Mm -hmm. just marketing gimmicks, you know, with the you know, tempur where they put the wine glass on one side of the bed, you know, and they drop the bowling ball on the other. Right, right yeah. like, wow, I Wow, it's memory foam. Yeah, yeah. you know, and like, oh, this is the foam they use, and they, you know. Put it in space. NASA, yeah. <laughs> for the space, and it's just, is like, all these marketing gimmicks, right? They have all these little, like, oh, this one has, like, diamond dust on it, and that does something that's right. important. And it's just all kinds of marketing gimmicks, and I think at that point in time, that's when JT and Day, he were, like, Dude, like we might
1: be onto something here, you know. Like it was. <laughs> they a took space. the red pill. They took the mattress red pill.
2: That's right. Yeah, and they they hadn't. There wasn't anybody else doing it really. Like it wasn't every every Silicon Valley company wasn't you know working
1: on a mattress startup. Who yeah who who is who's dominating the market at that time?
2: Um, it, it was the classic brands, you know, Tempur-Pedic, certus uh, you know, Simmons, just the, the yeah, legacy, same
1: guys that are around today.
2: The legacy brands that have been around forever were you know, Sleep Number, certainly a big one.
1: So they made um, money. The distributors made a ton of money.
2: Right. Yeah. I mean the
1: So there was a value chain that kinda and the the consumer was just getting stuck with it at the end.
2: Exactly. And I think they realized they could build a really, really good product on par, if not better than a lot of these companies and sell it for a fraction of what the majority of mattress companies were selling these products for. One by cutting out the middleman, you know, the distributors you mentioned, like the mattress firms of the world. I mean, most of these companies are, you know, marking things up two, three times. Right. And then the manufacturers have huge markups already. So by the time it gets to the customer, it's marked up, you know, six, seven, eight times, right? The gross margins are, are crazy in, in the business. So I think at that point, they realize like they're definitely onto something. And I think that's why they started to get traction very, very early on.
1: And, but therein lies the challenge, right? Because, you know, you said an early, you said a phrase that it's used in our business all the time and that's early adopter, mm-hmm. right? You had to go to people that were willing to take a risk, Yep. <laughs> and buying something online because you had to convince them that they didn't need to go into a store to buy a mattress in this $500 mattress at the time.
2: Yeah, it was about, it was about $500 is
1: just as good as a $3,000 mattress. So how right. did you, how did you get the early adopters to do that? And then if we're taking a look at it, like, you know, using the, the jargon, how did you cross the chasm? right. To make it generally accepted for the whole market to, to believe that like, Hey, we're getting hosed here, man. Like we're totally getting hosed and you do that through brand. I know that, but uh, they're part of that story. So I want to love to hear about that. Yeah. I mean, I I
2: think to to your point, I mean, it certainly was much harder in the early days because people didn't shop for mattresses online. Even this is back in 2012, even Amazon had a very, very, very small selection of mattresses. It was just one of those products that people assumed you buy in a retail store. You want to touch it. You want to lay on it. You want to feel it. Right. Um, but I think the experience was so bad that it allowed them to kind of you kind of use a better experience as kind of their wedge into the market, even though they sold to a very, very small percentage of the overall mattress market, which was the early adopters in the markets that I talked about um, and I think they leveraged the fact that, hey, like we're from Silicon Valley, this is a cool startup, like we're disrupting this industry, right That story very much resonated with the yeah. early adopters people market. wanted to, yeah people wanted to be first right, exactly, so you, you kind of have to leverage mark those markets uh, you know if you've got something new and innovative and different you can't just go to like Kansas or Missouri in the Midwest right. and expect that these people are gonna adopt it right I think you have to start with early adopter markets then you get enough credibility there right where you can kind of leverage that and go more into the mainstream market so I think that's what Tuft and needle did did right they were the really the first company in the space they had a really good story it was you know Silicon Valley engineers are disrupting this giant mattress industry that's very unfair for customers, right? So they had this kind of David versus Goliath angle that we could kind of lean into and play. Um, And I think that approach worked worked very, very well. And I think once we hit the point where the company was doing like nine, 10 million, it was pretty clear that this potentially could be pretty big. Um, And then, like I said, we started to transition more of our marketing into more, you know, the Midwest, more of the traditional, maybe like the slower adopter type markets because we had enough credibility built at that point where people weren't as concerned about buying a mattress online. I mean, I think one of the things that the JT got right very early was just taking the risk out of the equation for the customer. If people were like, yeah, like, I'd feel more comfortable if I could go to a store and, and actually try it. The approach was like, well, how do we just remove all the risk for the customer? Let's just come up with a 100-night return policy where no questions asked. If you don't like the mattress and we send it to you, we're going to pick it up, donate it to a charity, right? And you're going to get all your money back. So it yeah. doesn't hurt to
1: try it. Block the net. Yeah, just any reason they tell no, give a, give a counter exactly. solution to it.
2: Yeah, so I think that was the approach. And, and I think people that were like, well, probably feel more comfortable in a store. Yeah, I'll roll the dice and, and take the leap. Like, I like what this company's doing. It's interesting. Now it just comes down to, like, is the mattress comfortable? Do my, do my, you know, my spouse and I do? We like the way it feels. Um, but we could get past the hurdle of getting people to actually buy it. Once we got into people's houses, right, I think over time, our return rate became one of the lowest in the industry. It started out very high. Why was yeah. that, do you think? Um, I think part of it was, you know, JT and Day didn't have a lot of experience making a mattress. They were Got kind it. of experiments. Yeah, you know, so right? product, and, MVP, iterations. Yeah, and I think one of the, the things that a lot of people don't realize about Tuft & Needle is, like, they actually started in the Japanese futon mattress space. Interesting. Very, 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 very small market. So they started there. <laughs> and then College students. They kind of went, went into the early adopters <laughs> yeah. with with kind of the more of the mainstream mattress. But one of the, the mattresses they had originally was an all-cotton mattress, and they realized it's not a good a good product just doesn't work very well. So they ended up switching to a foam mattress, which was a five-inch foam mattress. But then the mass market was like, oh, it's too thin. It looks like a college dorm room mattress. Right. So then we ended up coming up with a 10-inch mattress. So we iterated just like any other sure. you know, product. But we would iterate very, very, very quickly. But I think JT became more knowledgeable over time with what types of foams, what type of formulations were better. We consistently improved. We measured MPS very, very, very religiously. Right. Yeah, religiously. And would use customer feedback to constantly improve the product but most mattress companies you know they might do a few iterations a year i mean jt was running iterations all the time Mm -hmm. new variations talk to the manufacturers talk to the companies that are doing the chemical and the you know uh, formulations for the foam coming up with new ideas until we got return rate from like it started out at 25 to 30 percent which is unsustainable Mm -hmm. i mean no mattress company can operate on those kind of return rates to over time, we got it down to about four percent.
1: And so, when when do you think you crossed the chasm? Like, what was there like a marketing initiative or like a, an event, an expansion that like you guys were like, okay, this is no longer early adopter. We're not just selling to the people who want to be first, who want to be cool. You know, they're impulse buyers. To people right. that like, hey, this is someone. This is a midwestern person that's never heard of us before. Was yep. there how big was the company, and when did you feel like you crossed that chasm?
2: Yeah, I, w- I would say it was probably when we were our run rate was maybe somewhere around twenty million dollars. Okay, like I joined when the company to nine, in um, the first year I joined. We went. So it was it like two like
1: months after you. Been... <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. I was. I mean, we didn't have a marketing team at the time. You know, mm-hmm. De- he was doing a little bit of it, um, but there was no marketing team at that point in time. So I, I joined. I was the first one. And it wasn't really clear what I was going to do. You know, De- he was just like, you know, we know he can bring a lot of value, and I knew that I would learn a lot from those guys, and I certainly did. Um, Privacy is right around the $20 million mark. Um, we started to see that the, the search volume for mattresses online and Google was growing. Um, so we felt like, wow, enough people have kind of heard about it. It's not this new crazy concept to buy a mattress online. Um, and about that time, our biggest competitor got into the space. And then Casper, um, they raised a bunch of money, right? So I think... Over time, they did a lot of the heavy lifting around building the category awareness. Nice. Because they raised tons and tons of money, right? And what we had to do, because we did we were a bootstrap company, we didn't raise any money. Um, we had to become very strategic with our marketing dollars. And what one of the things we did is they, they, they'd they spend a lot of money on you know Monday night football commercials and Howard Stern podcasts, these channels that we could never afford. Right. Right. And so they're spending money at the top of the funnel, just burning cash. Right, and we would bid on their search term because a lot of people would search for Casper mattress. Sure, and we would run a very aggressive, hard-hitting landing page, which was tough to needle and Casper. You know, compare them verse, yeah. Right, and we had better reviews. With Casper, we were a lower price point, and you. So had, it was it was it was kind of like a parasite. Yeah, your business model chart. was almost
1: like figured out, right? And you just took their their marketing budget and, exactly. and, we kind and of ran used the the your way against
2: them. Yeah. Um, so the yeah, co- it was right around that time. Around I think around twenty million, they started. They raised a bunch of money. We had kind of started to figure things out. I had brought in a really good friend of mine, um, a local guy's just like a master at AdWords. At the time, TNN had an agency that was running their AdWords account and they were only spending about 10000 a month. And I asked him, like, why can't we spend more? Right? And it was just like, well, you know, that's that's the max we can spend, you know, anything above that. You know, the agency said that? It. The agency said it. Yeah. We're like, that's just the most we can spend. The acquisition costs are too high past that. And, and I wasn't sure if they were right. But anyway, I talked to my friend and I'm like, hey, can you do some research into this? Right. And like, give me your thoughts on what you think is possible. And he he was like, I think there's a lot more upside and opportunity here than mm-hmm. what they're, what they're capturing. So we ended up pulling away from that agency, brought my buddy in house. Um, Probably save and, 75% of what you're paying the agency, right? Yeah. I mean, I can't remember exactly what we were paying them, but we weren't, we just weren't growing at that point in time right. as fast as we should in this channel. And I was like, there's a lot of search volume. We should be able to grow faster than this. So we started investing more. We started building out landing pages. Like my background's kind of more in online marketing. He's a Google AdWords super affiliate. So we kind of leveraged that expertise with a very, very, very small team and started growing that channel like crazy. And sure enough, like 10,000 a month went to 10,000 a day. Wow. Right? And we started growing very, very quickly with a small team. So we focused on one channel, kept expanding in that channel. And so we started seeing diminishing returns. And then we started to kind of move outside of that. but. I think that's really when the company started to become more of like a mainstream brand and it wasn't, like I said, viewed as crazy to buy a mattress online when we went to that year to like $40 million, mm-hmm. It was pretty clear that you know, this is going to be a big, a big opportunity for us.
1: So what was the, like, when did you feel like there was diminished return on the CAC? Because this was an a SaaS product, a person buys a mattress, what, like once every 10, 20 years? Yeah, it's about every eight to ten years yeah. on average. And you're lu- um, and you're lucky if you buy a pillow like <laughs> along with the brand. Like, what yeah. else are you going to buy from the brand, right? So yeah, I, I think
2: that um, it, it's it's more around how wide you want to go with your search terms, right? Mm-hmm. What are the terms you want to target, and the broader you go, the more traffic there is, but the less qualified that traffic is. So, for example, you might have a really really high conversion rate for you know best mattress for back pain. Mm-hmm. Right. But there's only so much search volume for that specific term. And sure. then you want to get very, very broad over time. And now it's best reviewed mattress, top rated mattress, just mattress. Right. 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 Massive search volume. But the intent of the searcher is, is generally not quite as high. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I laugh because I see all these, you know, just, you know, posts on LinkedIn. and Oh, yeah. You know, we just launched this campaign on AdWords, you know, and we got a, a 12x
1: return. Yeah. Roas like, is 12x. Yeah, your
2: Roas is 12x, but it's like, yeah, but you spent $3,000, uh, right. right? It's yeah. like it, Frank
1: Kern, he's he's famous for that. Yeah, it, it's, <laughs> so it's, he, it's, it's
2: very misleading, right? So right. it's like, yeah, when we started our return was like 9x. Right. Right? And I'm excluding branded search terms I'm talking non-branded search terms. Right.
1: But with scale, everything goes down. Right,
2: it goes down. So it's like, you know, you might get a 9x return when you're spending ten fifteen thousand dollars 15,000 a month, right? Mm-hmm. But you can't just 10x that and get it. And the then the
1: algo ad. penalizes you eventually, right? Because the experience isn't as good, right? If you see the it's, same
2: ads. It's less, yeah, it becomes less targeted. But we we still got it down even where we were scaling to, you know, seven-figure monthly spend. Our return was still pretty strong. Mm-hmm. Certainly better than probably any of our competitors were. We had so many landing pages, very, very targeted at all the search terms. We had the best reviews. We had a very sharp you know, price point. Um, so all those things combined, I think, allowed us to, allowed us to grow very, very quickly with a really small team. You know, we didn't have the luxury of having hundreds of millions of dollars in the bank mm-hmm. on our balance sheet like Casper did, you know? Sure. We had to stay profitable. So I think that when you're bootstrapped, it forces you to be resourceful. It forces you to be very, very scrappy and accountable for all the money that you spend. And I think that can certainly be helpful in the early stages because it reinforces building good fundamentals. Um, but looking back, there was a time where we should have probably raised because our biggest competitor, just just the sheer amount of advertising they were doing, just kind of started to drown us out. Mm-hmm. And we just kind of got lost.
1: Right. So, yeah, so that's that's a really interesting point. So, I mean, being a venture capital guy in Arizona, I remember some bigger name West Coast funds reaching out to me and being like, hey, can you get me in with the, the Tuft & Needle guys, right? Yeah. <laughs> and they were, you know, I mean, let's take them to the Suns game, let's, you know open, let's throw a hooker through their window, you know, whatever whatever, whatever it takes to get a meeting. And J- JT and Day, he don't like sports. So yeah. A terrible <laughs> it's idea. A, it's a bad idea. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Like, an, you know, an EDM festival right. or
2: something. <laughs> no, exactly. Better, but- yeah, you're way
1: off, guys. Right. Yeah.
2: That, that's why they didn't raise, you know. don't give a shit about the Suns
1: game. You want you want to talk about something insane right now, just as a little sidebar? So yeah. I'm looking over a, uh, one of my portfolio companies to, is raising right now. They just got a term sheet from uh, a VC in L.A., and I shit you not on the term sheet says we will provide three formula run racing tickets per year, you know, and we'll, and we'll try our hardest to get uh, to join you with them. <laughs> and I'm like, I text the founder. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? How did you? How did you put four? Like that's in the documents. Like that means that they don't give you the tickets. Like you can probably sue them. Like why would you? Why would you put that in a document? Just but
2: give I, me a valuation that's ten thousand dollars higher and keep the tickets. <laughs> <laughs> I was
1: like, well, like, what what happens, I don't care about these. Like, what happens if the deal goes bad? You know, what if you like you know, like you know, right. they accuse you of defrauding, but you still have to go and provide these tickets to the guy? Yeah, you're hanging out with the founder and the
2: business isn't doing well, and you're like, oh,
1: this is kind of awkward. <laughs> I'm at this race, you know. My investors that aren't happy with me right now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's like, but it says in the docs, we have to go to Formula One yeah, together
2: every nah, year. Nah, I just, yeah, do what you can these days. It's a competitive uh, world out there in
1: the VC lands. But. Never, yeah, we'll talk more about that most certainly. Um, so why didn't you guys raise?
2: Yeah, I mean, so we actually thought about raising multiple times. I don't think a lot of people know that. Um, but there was a few times that, actually right around the time that I was thinking about joining, um, TNN was seriously considering raising. I remember I was at Chop Shop with Davey and he was telling me about it um so there there were times where we definitely got close. I remember sitting with j t in his apartment uh, you know downtown, and we had were thinking about should we raise if we are going to raise you know, who do we want on our cap table who are the best investors that we can get on we're making a list with them um, so we had a lot of interest there's no question about it um, i i don't know the answer to like why we didn't raise I, I think there was a combination of things i don't think it was just one specific thing um one we didn't have to. We were profitable. We had really good terms with our suppliers. So our cash conversion cycles were really good compared to most e-commerce companies. Um, so, I think it, I think looking back though, there there was a time like I said. I think that we probably should have raised because we got our, we could have got a really 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 good valuation. Right? We were profitable. None, nobody no other company in our space was profitable. Um, we could have sold probably a pretty small percentage of the company and got quite a bit of cash that we could have used to kind of stay in front I think like so what happened over time is Casper just drowned us out and it, this narrative was that like Casper's the leader Casper's the pioneer Casper started this category none of that stuff was true sure but they just had so much money to put yeah, in the, the marketing money. they can, yeah. they can make people believe that right so um looking back there was a there was a time in which I think we we should have raised but I think that one of the challenge was, it became such a strong part of the narrative that the company was bootstrapped. And I think JT and Day had a hard time interesting pulling away from that because whenever they go to conferences, whenever there was like a story about- That was the their claim to fame. It was like, bootstrap company, hundred you know, 100 million dollars in revenue. And it's like, that was the one differentiator that we had over all the other companies, right? Not just in our space, but the vast majority of companies that were growing fast, that were in the press, they were all venture back. t you know, and was bootstrapped. So we had this interesting angle with the press. Right. And I think, like I said, it just became such but a strong you, part you, of the identity and the narrative yeah. that it would have been very hard to pull away at that point and become and become venture back, even though I think looking back, we there was a time in which we should have raised because we were very efficient. We were very effective with our ad spend. We could have grown a lot faster. We wouldn't have had a lot of dilution. Mm -hmm. Um, And it would have allowed us to stay in front versus over time, we kind of became the Pepsi and and Casper became the
1: Coke. Yeah, MailChimp also said they would never sell. So, Right, yeah. (laughs) there's always a number, right? Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah, the whole, oh, we're building this company for 100 years. (laughs) CNN said the same thing, too. But like you said, I mean.
1: There's always a number. Right. There's always a number. Exactly. Yeah, that's, you know, and when I think about, you know, I mean, there is something incredibly special about a bootstrap company right that you know you can of of execution and management and understanding margin that is second to none and and I think it kind of like you know, just thinking tangentially about it, I think it has a lot to do with like what what defines success to you as a founder
2: right you know
1: yeah. do you want to serve a master that might not have the same alignment yep. like are you okay not having a, as big of an outcome? Why do you have to be the biggest company in the world right. Was there any of that?
2: Um, I, I, I don't know. I think over time there's probably some ego, like, look how far we got when we didn't raise. Yeah. We don't, we don't need investors. We can do it ourselves. Right. Right. I, and like I said, I think a lot of it, it was just bootstrap was such a big part of the identity It's tough to Needle and it was just such a differentiator. So, you know, we we could leverage it with the press when, you know, JT would get, you know, asked to go speak on panels or go to conferences. It was always like. This is, you know, the bootstrap founder, it's the bootstrap right? guy, right, right, yeah.
1: and it's like, how can you he, be a sellout if you took money?
2: Yeah, I mean, so it's it's hard to say. I mean, I think it's probably a better question for JT or whatever. But I think that that's kind of my perspective is one of the reasons why we didn't mm-hmm. or we didn't raise it. One, we didn't we didn't absolutely have to, but it would have been nice to do it. And I think two, it was just hard for them to pull away from that that bootstrapped identity. You got it. Um, but. I think over time, the business started to plateau a little bit. It wasn't growing nearly as fast mm-hmm. because we had so many competitors in our space where if mm-hmm. we would have had additional capital, um, you know, I think we could have continued to grow very quickly for a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. We're just starting to flatten out a little bit.
1: Um, Great outcome for you. You know, you, you were able to, you know, sell your shares. I need mm-hmm. to take a loan, by the way, um, after right. after the show. Um, so... One thing before I wanna to transition to what you're working on now because you're doing some really cool stuff, is tell me about your involvement and building the tough to needle brand, specifically around domain names and your love for domain names and you know, the mattress stores are greedy story because I just I think that's phenomenal.
2: If we talk about domains, it's gonna be a three hour podcast. <laughs>
1: We have another, yeah, yeah dude, right. dude, like I just, for those who, this is a podcast, so I know people are looking, but like Tim's eyes just like lit up when he's talked about domain names. Like I've never yes. seen a kid so happy to, to go on to, to segue <laughs> into the next topic. So, there must be something wrong with me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's, nobody likes domain names <laughs> right. more than Tim. So go ahead, Tim. Um, let's talk domain but, names.
2: But yeah, so I, I mean, I think as it relates to tough to Needle, I, you know, I think domain names kind of intersect there because... um we had started doing billboard marketing. when mm-hmm. We were maybe a $15 million, $20 million company. We'd started real small in Phoenix, just a handful of boards. We didn't know what we were doing. Right? We had the you know, kind of traditional billboard design. We had like this beautiful lifestyle imagery with you know, some text overlaid on it. And I think one of the things we learned very quickly was that style of messaging, that design, it was very, very hard to read. People couldn't really make it out when you're driving on the freeway. But it looks great on a computer when you're looking at it from, you know, 18 inches away from your monitor. Mm-hmm. Um, so our returns were really, really low. They were terrible. And it can't, it was just like, this is a channel. It's not going to be sustainable if we're going to get these types of returns on it. So we really had to kind of rethink the strategy and approach um, to out of home. And I think it was kind of two pronged. One was we changed, we had to change the creative. So I was with JT. This is the time when, you know, the category was, was sexy and hot and everybody was jumping into it. everybody was starting a mattress company online um, and everybody looked the same it was always the same style branding, you know, same photography. They got the millennial couple on a mattress in New York City in some hip apartment, right? Every mm-hmm. company was saying the same things, the return policy was the same. It was really hard to find a differentiator at that time. So I was with JT and I'm like, "Dude, we, we need to come up with a new mattress or like a new marketing campaign. Something that's very kind of aggressive, that's polarizing, that's really going to just kind of set us apart." And he was like, Yeah, because our returns were going, they were getting lower at the time, right? We really had to do something to kind of change the direction. Um, so I remember I, we were sitting in his apartment, we were talking about ideas, and I said, What if we ran a campaign that said mattress stores are lying to you? <laughs> Punch up, baby. Yeah. <laughs> just I was swing. like, We're just like, we're going all in. Yeah. You know? And I was like, Dude, because like these are the things we say privately, we should be willing to say them public- not? publicly. Mm-hmm. And he was like, his eyes lit up and he's like, dude, let's do it. He's like, (laughs) I love it. Yeah. So he immediately got on his Mac. We like mocked it up in Photoshop. And I was like, PSA style messaging, like black background, (laughs) white text, you know, nothing, no fancy shit. Like, let's just get to the point. Let's make the text huge. Yeah. Right. So we we mocked it up. Mattress stores are lying to you. And uh, I remember I called our general counsel the next day and I said, hey, we're going to run a new marketing campaign. And he goes, okay, great. Tell me about it. And I said, it's mattress stores (laughs) are lying to you. And he was like, Hell no, absolutely (laughs) not. We're definitely not running mattress stores or lying to you. He's like, we're going to have lawsuits like within a couple days from certain Simmons, you know, and all the big mattress companies. And so, anyway, we we had a good relationship. We talked about it for a while and uh, we went back to the drawing board and we softened it a little bit, so we're like, okay, we're going to run mattress stores. Or greedy. There you go. <laughs> so he's like, I don't feel comfortable with it, but I feel more yeah. comfortable than I did right. mattress stores. It's not, it. a,
1: yeah, it's just an, it's 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 an opinion, more
2: uh, as, yeah, as like, a direct well, we gotta, implication, yeah, yeah, right? Exactly. So we uh, we settled on that, and the company was very split, and you know, split down the middle. Some a lot of employees were like, hell yeah, let's do this. You know, like this is what we say behind closed doors. Let's put it on billboards that are huge. You know, mm-hmm. on the side of the freeway. And there were a lot of other people in the company that were like, absolutely not. Like, we're not going to be that brand that's, like, finger-pointing, right. calling people Negative out. Negative selling. You know? yeah. yeah, and uh, we were like, let's give it a shot. we got to do something. It's hard to differentiate now. There's a million companies in the space. They're all saying the same things about their product and their warranties and their trials. Um, so we're like, let's give it a shot. What's the worst thing that can happen? And uh, so we started We started running billboards. And around that time, I mentioned there was kind of a two-prong approach. One was a creative, so the differentiator, the differentiator there was – Come up with the new marketing, you know, slogan tagline, which is mattress stores are greedy. Um, the second side was we realized like tuftandneedle.com dot com is just a mouthful. It's mm-hmm. just very very long. It's you know, it's thirteen letters. Tuft is not a common word. It is in the furniture industry, but people confuse it with Tuft, tough. T O U G H. They always
1: yeah. Uh, that's not a good that's not a good correlation to a
2: mattress. Yeah, exactly. Right. So it was interesting. <laughs> we would we were looking at the analytics and we realized like what search terms are people actually searching for when they're finding our brand online? It was Mm -hmm. crazy. People were searching for like needle mattress, tough T-O-U-G-H mattress. Right. And we're like, there's a clear problem here. They're not remembering our brand correctly. It's constantly Mm -hmm. getting misspelled. So we started thinking about domains like, you know, on a, on a billboard specifically, you have a limited amount of real estate and the bigger you make, you know, you know, the, the domain of your site, obviously the more space it takes up. So it allows less space for, the rest of your marketing messaging that you want to convey. Um, so we're like, we, we got to do something about the domain. We didn't want to rebrand the company because we had a lot of brand equity bill. We were growing fast had a lot of reviews, um, but we didn't have a lot of great options. Like the, most people do when they have a three word domain is they go to the acronym, right? And our mm-hmm. acronym is dot com, which is tan, right? <laughs> so we don't want to put tan, right? After stores are greedy tan.com. Like what the hell? Like, that make yeah. any sense. No, that's not a good. So, we we, had t, we looked at TN.co, um, yeah. but the challenge there with the .co, if you're a consumer-facing brand, is everybody's going to go to the .com. Mm-hmm. And then the owner of the .com finds out who you are, the domain goes up in price, right you become a victim of your own success, so it just becomes more problematic over time. Um, so we knew that the only option was TN.com, and we knew it was going to cost a ton of money. I was very familiar with the domain space. had a lot of friends that were brokers that had brokered you know super expensive one-word .coms. Um, so I reached out, I talked to my network, got some ideas on kind of where we think it would fall in terms of pricing. Uh, went back to the team, talked about it and we're like, whoa, like this is crazy. People that, that don't know the domain industry that don't realize like one word, two letter com domains consistently sell for millions of dollars. Um, so we were a bootstrap company, not a lot of resources, but we're like, this is the domain we have to have. TN.co is, isn't going to make sense. We're going to lose all the traffic to the .com. It's going to go up in price, and T-A-N isn't, isn't a possibility because it spells, it's a word. Um, so I reached out to the owner of TN.com, and he told me what he wanted for the domain, and I was like, wow. Like, that's even more expensive than I thought it would ever be. How much be. was it? It was in, well into the millions. Wow. Okay. It was their original.
1: Yeah, that that's,
2: that's a hard thing to stomach as a as a bootstrap company. Yeah, it was like this this and I told him, I said, "Listen, man, like at the time it wasn't public that I was working for Tough to Needle. I didn't have it on my LinkedIn, I didn't have it on my Facebook. I didn't want them to know who was trying to buy it." I just said, "Listen, like I'm representing an early stage startup. I said, "We love the name, but it's just not viable. We're a bootstrap company, like we we can't make this work." A couple months went by. I you know, I said, "If you ever get to like this range, I gave him an idea." Mm-hmm. I said, like, let us know if things change. I said, at least you know who we are. If someone else tries to buy it, let me know before you sell it to somebody else. Because I knew if it sold, we would we have no other option at that point. Right. A um, couple months went by. Long story short, the broker reached back out to me. He said, hey, like, I you know, talked to the owner. We're willing to, you know, come down, uh, you know, on the, on the original price that we gave you. I said, hey, it's still too high. Um, so I just said, hey, like we're not in a position to you know, pull the trigger. Um, another month went by. And uh, you know, I said, "Hey, I talked to the team a little bit more. The company's growing. We're willing to step up from where we were originally at." Um, and at that point, they we were still probably half a million dollars apart at that point in time. Um, so we ended up basically settling on a number that was a little bit more expensive than we were comfortable spending. But it was it was to the point where like this is our opportunity to get it. We can start using it right away. Let's not run the risk that it sells down the road and we can never get it because that, that outcome is going to be 10 times worse than mm-hmm. just overpaying a little bit more now. Sure. Um, so, what I did is I structured a very favorable uh, you know, payment structure. Yeah. So, I graduated the payments over time. And You're I think like a lot of people the don't The founder of
1: the domain deal, right? The tranche domain payment financing deal. Yeah, so it worked out very, very well. They financed mm-hmm.
2: it for us. Um, you know, we, we graduated the payments over time as the company grew. It was a win win, as cliche as that is. Um, but it worked very well. The, the the biggest advantage is you can start using the domain day one. Mm-hmm. You don't have to pay it off, before you can start using it. You control the you know the name servers and the DNS. So we started using it. So we, long story short, we put it on the billboards, mattress stores are greedy, learn the truth, tn.com, and right away... Our returns went way, way, way up. One, because you could read the messaging. Two people were like, What is this? Like, I've got to check it out. Yeah. It's such a
1: weird thing. That's message. an insane claim. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know so I people mean. are
2: like, what the hell is this? Yeah. Right? Like our traffic. We only had TN.com. I don't give and a billboards. shit about mattresses, but I need to know why they're Right? Waiting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is it, is it like a PSA is like, what like what is this? Like yeah. I, I wanna know, you know? So right. the traffic to TN.com went way up. Um, so at that point in time, we had kind of started to, we kind of figured out the unlock for billboards and started to scale up, but had we not had that domain. Our out of home campaign wouldn't have been nearly successful. So I think to this day, even though it was a seven figure investment, um, definitely the best investment the company ever made.
1: Mm-hmm. And so, tell me, tough needle sold, did very well. Some people are still with the company. Some people aren't. You know, sold. You sold to Serta, right?
2: Uh, well, there's a, there's a private equity firm called Advent, mm-hmm. um, that owned, yes yeah, Simmons. Yeah. Got it. So it's a private, they were, they were publicly <laughs> traded. They got taken private by Advent. Got it. So that's what we sold to.
1: Got it. And now you are doing all things, startup e-commerce, having some own projects you're working on, doing some consulting. What are the, some of the things that are interesting you today?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, just used to go back a couple years. I mean, I left the company in, in, uh, 2018. That's when the company got acquired. It was there almost four years. Um, myself and the former CEO of tough new working on a startup in the HVAC space, as you know, and got derailed due to COVID. We, we launched, started growing very quickly. Our manufacturer got shut down, uh, supply chain issues, um, just over literally overnight.
1: Um,
2: so anyway, long story short, he, um, Still good friends. He's working on a new project. They actually just got into Y Combinator. Oh, cool. Um, so they're in the the batch right now. Pete? Pete, yep, yeah. exactly. Yep. Pete and his, his business partner. They just got into YC. Um, so they're working on that. And then um, I've got a couple ideas for some different startups that I'm thinking about pursuing at this point. But do a little bit of investing here and there. Um, e-commerce, you know, software type type products are the most interesting to me. Do a little bit of like consulting as well. Um, but I like spaces that are like very unsexy. I think that was the biggest thing I learned. Um, one from my own company that I started, the precious metals company is we just, when you're in a space where your, your competitors expertise online is very, very low, it's just easy to win. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like, I, it's, I, I guess I learned this one from my business too, from playing poker for so many years is you just have to find where you have an edge. Mm-hmm. And I love spaces where it's very, very clear where I think I have an edge. If I don't feel like I have that, it's a very competitive space. I generally don't get involved. Even if I think it's interesting, I'm like the likelihood of success and winning here is is going to be much, much lower. So I try I try to find spaces where I think it's very, very clear that there's just a huge expertise and skill set mm-hmm. that we uh, that we have. So if that if that ends up being the case, then you know it's probably a space that I'm that I'm interested in. But that's kind of what I'm doing now. I, I still, you know, talking about domains, I still from time to time, friends will call me that are trying to acquire, you know, their one .coms, and I'll help them do it mm-hmm. just cause it's a you know, passion mine and I love domains. So <laughs> Dude, I, you love domains.
1: How big is your domain library?
2: It, it's actually not that big. I, I'm not like, I'm not a domain investor, but I follow the space very closely. I look every day to see what's selling at auction. I look all the time to see which companies are upgrading to their one .coms and I, I think it's a huge marketing hack to get a really, really good domain name. All these companies spend a fortune on marketing and their domain names are
1: terrible. It's I almost guess. like a token. It's like your own the original NFT, right? It's a digital asset that actually has substantial meaning to you.
2: Right. Yeah. It actually has real utility. Right. Um, Cause there's just borrowed credibility that you get when you have a short.com people assume that, wow, they're legit. They must be credible. They must be around for a long time. Right. And, uh, you know, we actually launched a product on a very, very premium domain that I own like four months ago when the uh, vaccine mandate was in effect. And literally overnight, right, we started running ads on AdWords. We started getting very big customers that were signing up. Now I can't just say it's because we were on a one word dot com, but we had the best domain in the space bar none. Tailwinds. Right. And there's just there's credibility that gets built into that because consumers, tr they don't, know, they don't know why they trust a short.com, but it's generally because larger brands have short.coms and larger brands have been around longer. They have more credibility. So you can borrow that credibility mm-hmm. when you have a short.com. But I always laugh when these companies are spending literally millions on marketing. I'm like, and you don't even have your brand.com. You're driving to like try brand, get brand, my brand, like <laughs> right. dot .co, whatever. Right. It's like you're cheaping leaving. out. So much leakage there. that you know The traffic's going to probably not a competitive reverse, but they're ending up on some landing pages as the domains for sale. They're like, right. It's oh, weird. They don't, they don't have their brand. Like it, it's just, it's just a huge miss opportunity. So it's like, if you can get a really, really premium.com, it allows startups to punch way above their weight. Yeah. class. Um Burn the ships, spend the money. Yeah. And get creative. It's not that you have to spend millions of dollars buying the domain, but just try to get something that's solid and sounds yeah. credible. But some of these brands that people are on, I'm like, oh. I'm <laughs> like these are just absolutely <laughs> terrible. They're just creating problems. For themselves down the road. Sure. Right now, maybe it doesn't make sense to spend a lot of money and you might be successful without it,
0: mm-hmm. but there comes a
2: point in time at which you're going to want it. And it's going to be very, very hard to get if you can get it at all. I mean, I remember you know, a funny story when you called me and you left me a voicemail and you said, Hey, I heard about this, this brand just raised $54 million. Do you remember this? Yeah. 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 And I, and I texted you and I said, no, that's not my friend's company. Uh huh. They're on high brand.com. <laughs> and you thought, you thought it was them that raised the money. You know? Right. Like that. that this happens all the time. Yeah, and you're just seething with anger that he didn't buy the domain, right? right? Because it, it's, a big, it's a big startup that has it. They're never going to sell it. They'll never be able to get it, right? And right. it's like, they'll always be in second place. It'll always be confusing. Their customers will email into the wrong email address when they have support issues. It's just- Sloppy.
1: Yeah, it's just, just just get it. Just get you know? it. For and, Tim's sake, just get the domain. Spend the
0: don't money.
2: Do it, don't do it for me. Yeah. <laughs> you, can thank, you can thank me later that it was good advice, but it's, uh, yeah, you can create a big problem for yourself down the road if you- you don't get it so but yeah that, that's what i'm up to nowadays and love always uh, just following startups you know especially in phoenix it's just the tech ecosystem is so much stronger it's grown so much it's much more vibrant than it used to be it's just cool to see all these companies doing interesting things
1: what are you uh what ex- companies are you excited about in phoenix public sector private sector doesn't matter like what, what companies are truly interesting to you right now
2: i'm trying to think in, in phoenix specifically um Probably some of the companies you're, you're familiar with, uh, you, know, what is, you know, Smart Rent, I think, is doing some really, really cool mm-hmm. stuff. Um, like, a big fan of what they're doing. I think that's a tough problem because they're in, they're in the hardware space as well. But sure. a huge fan of what, of what they're building over there. Um, one of my friends is has a company called Neighbor. This is the company we're talking about, The Domain. Mm-hmm. They're doing some really cool stuff. My buddies from Tuft & Needle that are uh, kind of doing the same concept, but in the outdoor patio furniture Yeah, patio space. furniture, right? Which is historically very, very expensive. They have a great product. They're growing very, very fast. I think that's one of the cool companies um, out here. And uh, I know there's just a lot of different companies that I find that I find really interesting. Um, I think like the fintech space right now is pretty interesting. Which I know is certainly not contrarian by any means. I mean, everybody's <laughs> thinking about like the fintech space. But I have a yeah. lot of friends that are involved in that space that are doing some
1: doing some pretty interesting things. So I've been thinking a lot about. Uh, that space. What do you think about the Amazon consolidation kind of Thrasio type type businesses that are, that are happening in that kind of, in that, that roll up? What are your thoughts around that? It, I've heard you speak about that and I think it's kind of interesting.
2: Yeah, I actually had, was thinking about that idea a couple of years ago. I think I actually talked to you about it. Um, that was, that was before I think it, the space got huge and very, very, very crowded, but I think it, it makes a lot of sense. But basically, if you're not familiar with these companies, there's Thrasio, there's Perch, there's Heyday, there's a million of them. And they're basically rolling up these small mom and pop, you know, FBA, Amazon stores that are doing, you know, three to five million in revenue, maybe half a million to a million dollars. And, you know, um, and I think they've done a couple hundred acquisitions in a very short time. The reason I actually started thinking about space was Advent, the company that acquired Tufted the Needle, made a huge investment into Thrasio, mm. which this is a private equity firm. This isn't a venture capital firm sure. that invests in. You know, these high flyers out of Silicon Valley. I was like, wow, it's interesting for a private equity firm to invest. There must be something here, and they've obviously got to be cash flow generative businesses, or they wouldn't be investing in them. um So that was in like the very very early days of Thrasio. But I think there's a lot of these brands out there, not just on Amazon, but I think you could do the same concept, but in e-commerce. People that are now I've seen companies doing it with Shopify stores, same concept. Mm-hmm. They'll buy these companies, they'll buy them for three, four, or five times EBITDA, and you know they put them together. Uh, under some parent company, they you know, basically aggregate them and
1: it's not a bad bit. We're trying you get- to flip
2: them to right. you know, some other private equity firm for 10 to 12 times. So I do think that there's real opportunity there. I would be a little bit concerned personally, just owning so many Amazon businesses and they're ruthless. I mean, and, that, and that's just the reality of it. You know, Amazon doesn't care if you're $500 million a year, which I think Thrasio is, I think you in revenue now. If you add up the combined top line of all the, you know, the businesses they've acquired I mean, we were a hundred million dollar year business to Amazon, and we were nothing just in the furniture category. They just don't care, yeah, right. And they are absolutely ruthless. So I would
1: just be very, very concerned about having all my eggs in that basket. Um, How do you feel about companies that you know that need Amazon data to, like, software companies that need Amazon data or enable Amazon, um, uh, e-tailers, right? How would you? I mean, would do you think that that's a pretty risky proposition? No, I think, I think I think spaces like that are good cuz you're mm-hmm. investing in the railroad tracks, right? You no. Know?
2: Um but I, I think the the concern, I think those companies will always have demand. Their customer base, the churn might be higher. Right. Right because the, they're in very very competitive spaces they get on Amazon all the time, right? Right, exactly. <clears throat> but there's always going to be another one coming in. Mm-hmm. Right? So your churn might be higher, but I think that customer base, I don't think there will be a shortage of companies that are launching on Amazon just because I mean, they're the Goliath in the space. They have all the traffic, right? So you're forced to kind of sell on their platform. But I guess I would be worried about owning like 100 FBA-only businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, Amazon, if they change the rules, right? There's all this manipulation with reviews, all these companies overseas that are gaming the system that are trying to knock you off. It's very hard to – or it's harder, I should say, to have a real mode on on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Some of these companies do, but it's just very, very, It's a very race hard to the mode. bottom, right? Yeah, it's it's very commoditized in a lot of ways. So I think there are decent businesses out there on Amazon, but a lot of them aren't businesses I would want to own that I think have any kind of defensibility, real defensibility, long term. I would rather be off of Amazon where you can control your destiny a little bit more mm-hmm. um,
1: on the Shopify platform. On Shopify, yeah. or
2: another one. But controlling your own traffic, yeah, just, right. I think Amazon can be a part of it. I mean, Amazon is a part of it for us. It's up to needle, it's like, it worked out great for us. We built that to a huge business. But over time, it was like all the profits that the company had was from Amazon. Right. And if they pull the plug on you or one year You're they want to, yeah, yeah. They, they rip your product off. Next year, they come back and negotiate and want to hire a margin. Yeah. Like, what, what do you do? No,
1: you, you, you can't, can't, you can't, you can't, you can't <laughs> do really say shit. no. Yeah, so, <laughs>
2: right. You know, that is that is the uh, that is the challenge. So I, I think that space, I mean, I've seen the multiples climb. Like, a lot of these times, you know, three or four years ago, they were buying these companies for three, four times. Now small Amazon FBA businesses that written bought for six, seven, eight times even yeah, there, right? I had a feeling that was gonna happen. Because yeah. I mean
1: honestly at the end of the day it's like where do you get your money back in three years? You know, when there's this much capital, there's too much supply. There's more hammers than there are nails right now. So as a result of that, prices will go up.
2: Yeah, exactly. But I th- I think the railroad <laughs> track business, like you talked about, the companies that are supplying data, these Amazon sellers, like those are gonna be good businesses for
1: years to come. Cool. Awesome. Um Thank you so much, coming for coming on, Tim. Uh, who who do you like to follow? Who's you know? What books are you reading? Anything you want to give a call out to as far as information you're ingesting?
2: Yeah, the book that I uh, actually almost threw it now is the uh, Poor Charlie's Almanac. Have you read that one? No, I haven't. Uh, it's Charlie Munger. Oh, this okay. Is, uh, Warren Buffett's partner in Berkshire Hathaway. So just. I love listening to interviews with those guys because it's not about what's sexy and cool this year, some fad or trend. They just, like, believe in building good fundamentals, great businesses that have real moats, real defensibility. And there's just so much wisdom. You know, they've just – they've been around for so long, right? And I've learned so many things from, from them. One is just invest in things you understand, you know, and, uh, I think when I follow that rule, I've done well. And when I haven't, <laughs> and mm-hmm. I certainly, I certainly have it. So yeah, that's the book that I'm like probably three quarters of the way through, but just so much was not just about business and investing, but the life in general. Um, and some podcasts I like, uh, I was a big poker fan used to play all the time when I was younger. Doug Polk has got a really cool podcast, the all in podcast. I follow
1: capital um, stack.
2: Yeah. Capital stack. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's at the top of the list.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm um, going to the all in summit. Oh, are you really? Yeah, I, I got know, a ticket. Cool. I got the golden ticket. I couldn't believe it.
2: Yeah, I think they. Uh, I think what they're doing is super cool. Dude, their, their podcast I is I love their perspective on, yeah, just all things. They're going on in the world, politics, mm-hmm. business, investing, et cetera. But I'm yeah, big fans of what they're doing. And then um,
0: some other guys that aren't as
2: well-known, like Elod Gill. Mm-hmm. Like, they, like, love his Twitter. Mm-hmm. He does some really, really cool stuff, so. Cool. a lot of great people out there, but I appreciate you having me on.
1: Yeah, Tim, it was great having you on. Again, everybody, that is Tim Hargis, who was the VP of Marketing and Business Development at Tough & Needle, now an entrepreneur, uh, domain name expert, uh, e-commerce brand expert, um, coming to you from the Pod Populi studio here in Scottsdale, Arizona, and uh, signing off, and we'll see you next week. Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.